0: One of my favorite passages in all the Bible, and perhaps it's one of your favorites as well, uh, is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, which reads, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, Uh, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them." There's a lot of talk uh, today about the place of good works in the Christian life. And I love uh, how, how Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 sort of clears the fog for us in such a concise and uh, eloquent manner. Uh, I want to talk to you a moment about prepositions. You kids in school, maybe you've learned about prepositions, okay? Uh, in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we learn... Uh, That we're not saved of grace or by grace. Excuse me. me, We're not saved of works or by works, but rather we're saved for works. Crucial that we understand those prepositions there, right? We're not saved of good works, but we are saved for good works. Uh, Meaning we're not saved on the basis, on the foundation of, of what we do before God. Uh, God saves us by his unmerited grace, by his unmerited favor, by the merits of Christ Jesus. That's the foundation of our faith. That's how we're saved. But we are saved for a purpose. One of those purposes is that we would walk in good works. Uh, We are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, that we would walk uh, in them. And so you can think of it this way Uh, works are not the root of our salvation. But they're the fruit of our salvation. Root and fruit. I don't know where I first heard that. I've heard a lot of guys use that that language, okay? But the root of our salvation is not our good works. It's the unmerited grace and favor of God in Christ. But the fruit of our salvation is that we would produce good works uh, that are good for our neighbors and beneficial to others and that are to the praise and glory of God that are well-pleasing to Him. So, y'all, we're not saved of works. We are saved for works. Uh, Works are not the root of our faith, but they're the fruit of our faith. And so it's good for us that we would talk about the subject of good works in a positive way. If we're talking about being saved by good works, that's in every way wrong, every way negative. But good works in the Christian life are a good thing. They're commendable. They're well-pleasing to God. They're good for others, and they bring glory. They're well-pleasing to our Father who is in heaven. And it's the subject of good works in the Christian life. The good works that, according to Ephesians two ten, that we're supposed to to walk in as workmanship in Christ Jesus. It's those good works that I want to talk about tonight. I'd like to talk to you about the place of good works in our witness to the world. We've been in a five week series. This is the fifth week. We're concluding this series on the purposes of the church. Uh, the first week together, we considered uh, the promotion of the public worship of God, the peculiar glory of gathered worship. And then in the second week, we considered the proclamation of the gospel as one of the purposes of the church. Thirdly, we considered the equipping of the saints for uh, the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. And then last week, uh, we considered the mutual fellowship and communion of believers. We talked about life uh, in the new community, a community marked by love and by service and by encouragement, and by accountability. Now this week, I'd like us to look at the fifth purpose of the church that is the display of the character of God through good works. Tonight I'd like to talk about the place of good works in our witness as the church. Uh, Preachers uh, rarely say anything original. I'm aware in in however many sermons I've preached, I've, I've probably never said anything original. You hear so many sermons, you read so many books, and you just pick up things along the way and you forget where you uh, got them. And so you just have to preach, right, and and, and, uh, and just press on. Uh, But tonight, I'd like to acknowledge just a peculiar indebtedness to Charles Spurgeon, to his sermons, to his thought on this subject that have influenced me greatly, and I hope to draw out some quotes from Brother Spurgeon as we uh, go through our time tonight simply two points I want to make tonight, and I will spend much more time on the first than on the second. Two points. The first is this. I'd like to prove to you from the Bible that Christians are to be energetically engaged in good works. Christians are to be energetically engaged in good works. The second point is this. I'd like to show you that good works Excuse me. the good works of Christians display the character of God to the world and thus form part of our witness. Good works of Christians display the character of God to the world and thus form part of our witness. So firstly, I'd like to show you from the Scriptures that Christians are to be energetically engaged in good works. Please turn in your Bibles again to Titus, and this time to Titus chapter 2. I'd like to read the, the four verses that precede Titus chapter 3, and then we'll look at some of the verses that Brad read in chapter 3 as well. I'd like us to look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Please follow along as I read. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, Who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. See that in verse 14. He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Why did Christ give Himself? Uh, Why did Christ fix His face like flint and head to the cross? Well, there's a number of ways we could answer that question. The answer that we have here in Titus 2, verse 14, is that Christ gave himself on the cross to redeem for himself a people. He wanted to redeem men and women, sinners all over the world, uh, sinners without distinction from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And what were those people to look like? What were they to be marked by? Well, Titus 2 tells us that those people that he was to redeem were to be marked by zeal, for good works, what were these people to look like? These Christians—they would be marked by zeal for good works. Uh, now, the word "zeal" or, or "zealous"—that's uh, not a word we use very often in common speech. Um, for whatever reason, it's one of my favorite words in all of the English language. We just don't use it a lot. I want to kind of revive this term and, and use it more in our everyday life. What does it mean to be zealous for something? to be zealous for something, to have zeal, is to have particular enthusiasm or pa- or passion in pursuit of a particular cause or objective. That's what, what zeal is. So if I'm zealous uh, for Clemson Tiger football, uh, it means that I'm enthusiastic, I'm passionate about seeing the Clemson Tigers uh, win football games, which went very well this year. And uh, I'd like to think it had in part to do with my tuition that I paid at that school and my cheering that team on and and surely that that spurred them on to win the national championship you can be zealous for a particular cause all sorts of Christians are zealous for the pro-life cause Uh, that might mean that you give your time and your energy and your resources you might volunteer a Saturday to march in a a uh, uh, um, pro-life march or something like that Uh, you might give of your resources to promote the pro-life cause because you're zealous for that movement you can be zealous for a political candidate. Uh, you can really, on a, on a more trivial level, be zealous for a particular type of food. Okay? Very zealous for uh, the Chick-fil-A number two spicy chicken sandwich. And I give of my time and my money to make sure uh, that I enjoy the spicy chicken sandwich at Chick-fil-A. That's what zeal is. Uh, passion, enthusiasm, energy in pursuit of a cause or an objective. Well, in Titus 2.14, what are we told we're supposed to be zealous about? We're to be zealous for good works. God's people are to have zeal for good works. I'm very thankful uh, that Paul, in writing to Titus, uh, encouraged, or excuse me, wrote down the word zealous. He didn't just say Christians are to perform good works, but they're to experience passion, energy, enthusiasm over good works. See, zeal gets out our motives. Okay, it's not enough that we just uh, do things, these rote acts of kindness, simply out of obligation and out of uh, just a dead observance to the letter of the law. But rather, we're to be zealous about the good works we perform. We're to be passionate about them. We're to be moved. We've been changed such by the grace of God that performing good works is our delight. It's something that we're zealous for, where once maybe we would have never thought of acts of benevolence and mercy and charity for others. We were all about ourselves. Uh, now being shown the graces of God in Christ, uh, we're now moved with zeal to practice and walk in good works ourselves. Uh, this might beg a question, what are good works? You ever wonder that when the Bible's talking about good works? Uh, what, what, what does that mean? How does the Bible use that term? It's a very broad term. Very, very broad term. Uh, the, the term works, especially, is a very broad term. Uh, I have reference to works of the law and things like that. I have reference to good works. In some places, they're commended. Some places, they're not. In fact, that little maneuver there with root and fruit that I shared at the beginning of the service will often clarify a lot of that confusion. Uh, but the term good works in Scripture uh, usually means at least acts of benevolence and kindness done out of love for neighbor For the glory of God. Good works in Scripture never mean less than acts of benevolence and mercy done out of love for neighbor for the glory of God. Here's a little bit more expansive definition from from Charles Spurgeon. He says, Quote: Good works are works of love, unselfish works, works done for the benefit of others and the glory of God, deeds of charity kindness and brotherly love are good works, as also careful attendance to duty and all service honestly done, together with all courses which promote the moral and spiritual good of our fellow men. Works of devotion in which you prove that you love God and his Christ, that you love the gospel, that you desire to spread the kingdom of Christ. Two things I want you to notice by what Mr. Spurgeon has said. First of all, notice he's getting at motive. Good works, if they really are good works, ought to be done out of love for God, love for our neighbors, love for our fellow men. Our motive matters, okay? So if you go and visit someone uh, in the hospital uh, purely to satisfy your conscience or to um, have them think well of you, that's not a good work, okay? Good works are done out of love for God, and they're done out of love for our fellow men. The second thing I want you to notice by the words that Spurgeon has conveyed is that good works... Uh, are not just every good thing that we do, but they're good works that are done with reference to others. So there's a sense in which I could say that when I wake up in the morning and I go down to my study and I pray and I read God's Word, that's, that's a good work, that's something we ought to do. But the way the Scriptures use the term good works is usually talking about acts of kindness, benevolence, compassion, sympathy toward others, toward our fellow men, someone else is involved, we're to love our neighbor. Uh, we're to do good to others. We're to uh, be uh, the friends of sinners and friends of our fellow men. They're done with respect to others. So these good works basically are acts done in kindness to meet the real needs of others. The deeds of benevolence done out of love uh, for neighbor. And this definition becomes clearer as we get into Titus chapter 3. So look on to chapter 3 now, the text that Brad has hopefully read for us. And listen to how Paul continues to unfold this theme of good works. Paul is writing to Titus, this young man in the faith. He's ministering in Crete to these very immature churches. And again and again in Titus, he's emphasizing this subject of good works. Look at verse 1. He just got done telling us that we're to be a people zealous for good works. He says now, verse 1, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. You see that idea of enthusiasm and energy? We're we're ready, there's a readiness uh, to perform acts of kindness and benevolence toward others. Uh, We're ready, we're sensitive to the needs of our brothers and sisters and the needs of the poor and the weak in the world, and we're ready to perform good works. Uh, Look down now at at verse uh, 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Be poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the gospel of eternal life. Verse eight, the saying is trustworthy. He says to Titus, I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things, meaning the works, are excellent and profitable for people. Presumably, the people who are the beneficiaries of our good works. you getting the picture here? Uh, Paul wants these churches in Crete uh, to be zealous for good works, to be ready for good works, to devote themselves to good works. And look again, uh, now down at verse 14, one of the last things he says in the way of instruction in Titus chapter 3, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. The good works of Christians are largely with reference to other people and they're meant to meet cases of urgent need. Now, we're Christians here in the West, here in the 21st century. I hope you recognize uh, that the the, the Christian context in which most of us live is uh, an utter anomaly with respect to church history and actually with respect to most of the world today. Uh, God's people throughout history have genuinely been poor uh, they have usually not had a lot of social status and political power. Uh, they have gen- generally have been the have-nots in society. And it's actually that way today. Most of God's people in the world today are poor. Uh, they have cases of urgent need. Now, for us in the West, most of us are doing all right. Uh, I'm, I'm going to guess that most of you here have a house or an apartment. Uh, you're not going to go sleep out in a tent somewhere tonight, most of you, hopefully all of you. And if you need a place to stay, please come stay with us. I don't want you out uh, under the elements, okay? Uh, but most of us have, have a place to live. Most of us have a means of transportation. Uh, most of us have uh, food in our refrigerators and in our pantries. That's very rare in the world, y'all, very rare, And yet we have known unprecedented blessing in 21st century America, which can make understanding and applying and interpreting texts like Titus 3 a little tricky, a little difficult. But I don't want you to miss the point. good works in the lives of believers are meant to help causes of urgent need. They're meant to help people who are weak, people who are poor, people who are struggling. And y'all, there are people all over the world who are in that predicament. And that's what Paul has his eye toward. Uh, as he's writing to Titus. We want Christians who are marked by zeal for good works, who are ready for good works, who are enthusiastically and energetically engaged in good works, and they have an eye toward the needs of those who are around them. And they're passionate, zealous about meeting those needs and helping those who are weak, helping those who are oppressed, uh, helping those who are down on their luck, helping those who don't have enough to feed their family at night or clothe their children or have a place to stay. That's to be the leaning, the readiness of Christians. We're to be zealous for good works. The question you might have is who ought to be the object of our good works? We've said that other people in general, but as we think about helping others, as we think about uh, being engaged in acts of benevolence and acts of mercy and acts of sympathy and compassion toward others, who ought to be the object of our good works, of our benevolence, of our philanthropy? Maybe you've thought of this text. I want not ask you to turn there because it's very short. Galatians 6, verse 10, says this. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. For to be the objects of my good works, of my benevolence, my charity, my philanthropy. Everyone. But especially the household of faith. Unfortunately some Christians have forced an unnecessary dichotomy upon this verse. Uh, They fail to see that God's people receive priority in our benevolence. Uh, Rather, they tend to see God's people as being the ones who are exclusively the recipients of our benevolence. Uh, But Galatians 6.10 tells us that everyone, every one of our neighbors, is entitled to our, our love, our benevolence, our charity. We're to do good to all. But Paul says here especially to the household of faith. I think he expects us to especially have an eye towards our brothers and sisters who are in need. And I think there's a number of reasons for that, not least of which what we considered last week. Jesus says that you will know, or they will know, that you are my disciples by how you love uh, one another. Jesus expects us to wash one another's feet, and that's to be a a sort of an apologetic witness to the world. And so the world kind of watching in says, you know, if they can't take care of one another, uh, why should I believe them? Uh, if they're not loving one another, why should I expect they've ever experienced the love of God? And so our love toward one another, our compassion for one another, our good works done in service to one another are actually part of our apologetic witness. It's part of showing to the world that we're real, that we're legit, uh, that we really are those who have been changed by uh, the mercy and the blood of Jesus Christ. I think Paul would also single out the church, the household of faith, because in, in, in this day it would not be seen as uh, socially commendable, culturally uh, hip, okay, to help Christian people. There's a stigma attached to that. And so you might have some wealthy brothers and sisters in the church who might be embarrassed to go down to this widow Christian's house and uh, help her out, because there's a stigma attached to Christians in these days. And so Paul is saying, y'all, there should be a special priority to how we help one another. Uh, first of all, we ought to have eyes towards the needs the people in the church, and our good ought to be done towards them, especially them, but not only them. Our good works ought to be done for all. Every one of your neighbors is entitled to your love, to your compassion, to your charity, to your philanthropy. Matthew 25, you know that text. You don't need to turn there, Uh, but it talks about the peculiar love that we're supposed to have for Christians Actually, on the day of judgment, uh, as God is shepherd, separating the sheep and the goats, uh, this is the dividing issue. How did you take care of God's people? Uh, Jesus says that if, if you've given cups of cold water, if you've fed those who are hungry, if you've provided a blanket to those who were naked, if you've helped needy uh, brothers and sisters, it's as if you did it for me. And there are people that are, are brought into eternal life Because they determined to serve the body of Christ and to help God's people in the world. And they provided that cup of cold water. And they provided that loaf of bread. And they provided that blanket and that clothing and that support. And they enter paradise because of that. And there are people who are damned because they had no eyes towards the needs of God's people. Uh, Maybe they taught the talk about how uh, they loved Christ, they'd experienced His grace, and yet they did not make any effort to help those who were in need. And Jesus has some very strong words to say in that text. He actually judges professing Christians on that basis. He says, if you're not geared toward good works, if you're not geared towards feeding the hungry and clothing the naked, you are not one of my disciples and you will not enter heaven. Strong passage. But we see as we go through the Bible, our good works are not just limited to Christians. God is concerned that we do good to all. So let me ask that you turn to Luke 6. Okay, Luke chapter 6, which gets right to the heart of this issue, uh, that we're to love not only our brothers and sisters in the church, but everyone uh, in the world, everyone that we come into contact with. Luke chapter 6, I'd like to look, verse 27 through 36. Follow along as I read. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit that to you if we love our brothers and sisters in the church who we know love us as well what benefit is that to us for even sinners love those who love them and if you do good to those who do good to you what benefit is that to you for even sinners do the same and if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive what credit is that to you even sinners lend to sinners and get back the same amount but love your enemies and do good And lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. God's people who are to be zealous of good works, they're to be merciful as well. And they're not only to love their brothers and sisters in the church, they're not only to love their family members, they're not only to love those who love them in return, but they're to love even their enemies. Uh, This is one of the prevailing ethics of the Christian life. It's one of the most wonderful things about the Christian life. God's people not only love when it's expedient and convenient, they even love their enemies. Oh, that the Christian church all over the world would be marked by love for enemies. What a witness that would be to the world. If we weren't just navel-gazing all the time and just loving those who are nice to us and loving those who make it easy to love, but if we were marked by love for our enemies... I mean, just is anything more countercultural? Is anything more counterintuitive to human nature? And Jesus is saying, this is what should mark us: we're to even love those who spitefully use us and abuse us. Uh, we're to allow ourselves even to be cheated and not getting back the amount of money that we lend. We're to go above and beyond what people in the world do. We're to love those who persecute us, those who spitefully use us and abuse us, those who are even our enemies. We're to be marked by that. Kind of love. A uh, very famous passage is just a, a few chapters down from Luke 6. It's found in Luke 10. Uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. imagine many of you are familiar with that parable. It's surprising to me how, how, how often people miss the main purpose of the Good Samaritan, uh, they forget the context in which Jesus gave that parable. Uh, this man comes to Jesus and is basically uh, pious and self-righteous and he's testing Jesus and he thinks he's obeyed all the commandments and he asks Jesus what he's supposed to do and Jesus says, well, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. And he gets cheeky. Cheeky is a British word for smart or smart aleck, okay? Uh, he's a bit of a smart aleck and so he says, uh, uh, well, well, okay, teacher, who is uh, my neighbor? He's going to trip Jesus up, Okay? And Jesus then tells the story of the Good Samaritan. He talks about this man who went down the road and he fell among robbers and he's stripped of his clothes and he's beaten and then uh, this self-righteous Jew walks by him along the way and then a priest walks by him as well and they do nothing to help him. Uh, but then the Good Samaritan comes and he, not even knowing this guy, Uh, uh, comes and shows compassion and addresses his wounds and clothes him and takes him to a local inn and he leaves a, a wad of cash with the innkeeper and says, anything he needs, charge it to my account. He takes care of this brother and makes sure he's well and sent on his way. Jesus does not respond by saying then, so who do you think is your neighbor? Jesus actually says, which one of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He's flipped the question on his head. He's not answering the question, who is my neighbor? He's saying, who have you been a neighbor to? It's not about a, 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 who, who deserves my love, who really should be the object of my love. Jesus moves right past that, everyone. what a to love everyone. Our, our, our neighbor is, is everyone that we come into contact with. The question is, have you loved anyone? Have you been a good neighbor? Have you behaved like the good Samaritan? Do you have an eye towards needy people? Uh, do you have a, a heart that leans into acts of benevolence? Are you ready for good works? Are you zealous for good works? Are you like the Good Samaritan? Are you that kind of neighbor? James 1:27 says, "Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this: to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep one'self unrestrained from the world." Uh, James. He's writing in large part to expose false Christianity. This is one of the things he says. You want true religion? You want the real deal? You want the real gospel? It's this. uh, That you show by your deeds that you're the children of God. That you have uh, affection toward widows and orphans. You think you have a high standing in the church? You think you're a particularly pious individual? What have you done for those in need? That's what Jesus is saying. Because God's people are to be marked by good works. They're to have an eye towards those in need, orphans and widows. And the sphere of their love is literally the entire world, any neighbor that we would come into contact with. Listen to Spurgeon again on this point. I think he hits it right on the head a lot more eloquently than I could. Charles Spurgeon said this, the Christian sympathy should be uh, ever of the widest character because he serves a God of infinite love. When the precious stone of love is thrown by grace into the crystal pool of a renewed heart, it stirs the transparent life floods into ever-widening circles of sympathy. What on earth is Spurgeon saying there? He's saying that conversion, the kindness of God, is like a stone that's thrown into a pool. What happens when you throw a rock into the water? You have these widening circles, these waves that get bigger and bigger, as they expand. And they get ever wider and wider. And Spurgeon goes on to say that when a person is converted, uh, they first start showing kindness in their family. But it doesn't stop there. They start showing kindness in their church. Then they start showing love and kindness in their community. And finally, uh, those circles, they get ever wider, they expand to the ends of the earth. Everybody is now within the sphere of my affections and my love and should be the object of my good works. So let me talk about Spurgeon for a moment. Uh, something that I love to do. Charles Spurgeon is well known uh, as the prince of preachers. The case can be made that Charles Spurgeon was the greatest preacher in Christendom. Plenty of people might want to debate me on that, but he's got a pretty good case, okay? Uh, He was the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, uh, one of the first mega churches in London. At the time, he preached regularly to about 6,000 congregants. It was the largest church in Christendom Uh, in that day. This would have been in the the, the mid to late 19th century in Victorian England. Uh, He was the greatest preacher of his day. No one uh, would debate that. And he preached on one occasion even to 25,000 people in a much larger facility. The only reason he preached to 6,000 each week is that's all they could fit in the door uh, without the fire marshal having a heart attack. And uh, he preached to these massive crowds week after week. And his sermons fill, uh, even to this day, uh, 63 printed volumes. And we're not talking about little slender 200-page volumes. We're talking like seven, 800-page Mac volumes. 63 of those. If you ever want to see them, they're on my uh, shelf at, at my office. And you know what? They're still printing more. Uh, there are 12 more volumes coming out over the next five or six years. mean, this guy was just, just, just a larger-than-life preacher, Uh, But there is a Spurgeon that is lesser known. Tragically, that is lesser known, and that is Spurgeon, the philanthropist. Spurgeon was one of the most legendary philanthropists and Christian activists in Victorian England in his day and age. Spurgeon founded 66 benevolent institutions. 66 what we would call church ministries uh, for the purpose of benevolence. He founded 66 of those which almost all were operated out of the Metropolitan Tabernacle there in the middle of London. And listen, he uh, uh, fully funded some of those institutions himself. He gave to almost every single one of them. Uh, this is a man who was worth over 25 million pounds in his day. He died broke, okay? This guy gave himself. I mean, he burned calories for benevolence. And uh, he chaired most of these Benevolent institutions, they included uh, a famous seminary, a a pastor's college that he funded almost entirely by himself, at least in the early days, Uh, two orphanages, uh, a ministry to police officers, a ministry to prostitutes. Um, He was uh, a famous social activist in in his day. He had a ministry to uh, people who were uh, working in abusive uh, work conditions, and he advocated uh, for their rights and for, uh, for their cause. Uh, he actually famously fought against the slave trade in America and took a lot of hits for that. Uh, back then, it was not really popular to be opposing slavery in the 1850s and 1860s. Spurgeon is making hundreds and hundreds of pounds in America, and uh, he he starts preaching against slavery, and uh, he actually loses all his sermon sales in America. And actually, southern towns all throughout the South start burning his books in mass as he takes this stand against slavery. And he starts receiving death threats uh, for this stand that he takes. And it really is no wonder, because he said things like this. Remember, it's not popular to say this when Spurgeon said this. I do from my inmost soul detest slavery. And although I commune at the Lord's table with men of all creeds, yet with a slaveholder, I have no fellowship of any sort or kind. I would as soon think of receiving a murderer into my church. As a man-stealer. If I stood up here and said that today, uh, you know, that wouldn't be big beans, okay? It'd be like, yeah, sure, we all think that. In Spurgeon's day, that was a big deal, and he received death threats for that. He lost uh, thousands and thousands of pounds in the sales of his sermons over that godly stand. There's a man named John B. Guff. He was a famous temperance activist in the 19th century. He once went on a visit with Spurgeon to his Stockwell Orphanage. That's what Spurgeon's orphanage was called. And Guff is in town, and so they go down to the orphanage to visit it, and Spurgeon showing them around. And While they're at the orphanage, which Spurgeon founded and, and raised funds for and funded himself, Spurgeon was alerted that one of the orphans had become very ill and was about to die. And he requested that Spurgeon would come. So you have this little boy, maybe seven or eight years old, and he wants Charles Spurgeon to come. Uh, to his bed. By the way, Spurgeon spent every Christmas with his orphans. This man, this man was, was passionate for good works and for benevolence. And so he goes to the bedside of this dying child. And he's ministering to this child. And he's praying. And he's weeping over this child. And listen to what John Guff says as he witnesses this scene. He says, quote, I have seen Mr. Spurgeon holding by his power 6,500 persons in a breathless interest. Oh, to preach like that one day. 6,500 persons in a breathless interest. I knew him as a great man, universally esteemed and beloved. But as he sat by the bedside of a dying pauper child whom his beneficence had rescued, he was to me a greater and grander man than when swaying the mighty multitude by his will. He's saying, Spurgeon the philanthropist. Uh, Spurgeon, the man who would rescue dying children off the streets and house them and visit them when they're sick, that Spurgeon, that was the real deal. That was the greater and grander man. And he was a larger man then than he was when preaching to the mega crowds of 6,500. Spurgeon was a man who was in fuego for good works. He was zealous for good works. He was committed, devoted, ready for acts of benevolence toward those who are in need. So let me go to this legendary philanthropist now for some exhortations for us, okay? Spurgeon in a sermon on Matthew 5, verse 7, which says, Blessed are the merciful. This is what he said. He, a Christian, understands that as his Lord and Master sought after that which was wounded, bound up, that which was broken, healed that which was sick, and brought again that which was driven away, even so ought all his servants to imitate their Master by looking with the greatest interest after those who are in the saddest plight. Oh, children of God, if you ever are hard-hearted towards any sorrowful person, you are not what you ought to be. You are not like your master. Where God has given a man a new heart and a right spirit, there is great tenderness to all the poor. In the sermon on John 9, verses 3-4, through 4, where Jesus heals the man born blind, the Spirit says this, Jesus, my Savior, has a quick eye to see the blind beggar if he sees nothing at all. Jesus is all eye, all ear, all heart, all hand where misery is present. My master is made of tenderness. He melts with love. O true souls who love him, copy him in this, and ever let your hearts be touched with a fellow feeling for the suffering and the sinning. Sermon on Job 30, verse 25, Spirit said this, Sympathy is especially a Christian duty. Consider what the Christian is, and you will say that if every other man were selfish, he should be disinterested. If there were nowhere else a heart that had sympathy for the needy, there should be one found in every Christian breast. Now listen to this. I love this. This is my favorite quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, to me, a follower of Jesus means a friend of man. A Christian is a philanthropist by profession and generous by force of grace." I love this. Wide as the rain of sorrow is the stretch of his love, and where he cannot help, he pities still. Wide as the rain of sorrow, so wide is the stretch of the Christian's love. Wouldn't you want that to be said about you? I'd want that to be said about me. Is there sorrow in the world? Is there hurt in the world? Are there needy people in the world? Is there sin in the world? Why does all that sin and death and sorrow and need so wide is the stretch of the Christian's love? Now, he's not saying that we can actually meet every physical need in the world and that we could solve uh, the problems of hunger and disease in, in sub Saharan Africa, but he is saying our love is for those people. We are energized and enthusiastic for their well-being. We're zealous for good works that would help people in that situation. And where we cannot help, Spurgeon says, we ought to pity still. We ought to pray still. Christians ought to be zealous for good works. And brothers and sisters, I encourage you, uh, follow Spurgeon and how you see him following Christ. I hope you look through Spurgeon, the great philanthropist, and see our Lord and Savior, who has a heart toward the needs of men and women. Now, very briefly now, I'd like to consider a second point. Very briefly. That is that the good works of Christians display the character of God to the world and thus form part of our witness. We're talking about the purposes of the church, right? And I've just made an effort to persuade you that we all, as God's people, if we've known the grace of God, the love of God in Christ Jesus, we ought to be zealous for good works. We ought to show love toward others. But how does that affect how we think about The church and our purpose here if God is to form us into a church what place will good works have and our witness to the world let me ask that you turn to one more text Matthew chapter 5 Matthew chapter 5 I want to read verses 14 through 16 some of you know this is the Sermon on the Mount Jesus' great sermon very memorable section of scripture Matthew 5 I'd like us to read verses 14 through 16 is that His disciples will be like a light, like a lamp that's shining bright. They'll be like a city on a hill that you can't mistake. And what they're seeing is the good works of Christians. That by seeing their love, their compassion, their philanthropy, their charity, as they see these good deeds, these good works, they'll be moved to give glory to their Father who is in heaven. See, there's an apologetic purpose behind these good works that as they see people transformed by the love of Christ, they see people that are meeting physical needs and serving others and pouring out their lives and showing charity and mercy and compassion on others. It has a, an impact on people. Their hearts are softened. And they're more inclined to believe the truth that by seeing the good works of God's people, they would give glory to their Father who is in heaven. I'm thankful so many, for so many churches, so many Christians who have gone before us who are well known for good works. Sadly, this has not characterized the church broadly. Uh, Gone are the days when I as a preacher can point to the good works of Christians all across the world that are notorious to people, that are famous to people, and can say that's what Christianity produces. May that never be said of us. That as we seek to minister in this community, I hope that people know Emmanuel Church is famous for good works. We know there's love in that church. Whether they like our doctrine or they like our preaching or the songs that we sing or want to become part of us, I want them to know this. Emanuel Church loves their neighbors. Emmanuel Church is for Winston-Salem. They are geared towards charity and philanthropy and benevolence. And they have compassion on the needy and the brokenhearted. People will know that if I'm in real need, I can go to them. And I'll find warm hearts and open doors. Hearts of love. Hearts of charity. People who are zealous for good works. I remember hearing of uh, it's a Grace Community Church for John MacArthur ministers out in California. Real estate agents I heard were actually listing uh, as a benefit of particular neighborhoods and houses. Uh, one of the things that was attractive about particular neighborhoods is that they were close to Grace Community Church. Real estate agents, sec- secular, non-believing real estate agents would say, you really want to live in this neighborhood because you'll be close to Grace Community Church. That's a light, y'all. That's, that's a city set on a hill. That's a church that's famous, notorious for good works. And it actually enhanced living in that area. It was seen as a benefit to being in that part of the country, that part of the state, if you were close to that church. How great would it be if these apartments down this way and these neighborhoods over here knew, man, those people at Emanuel Church, they love. They're zealous for good works. And our community is enhanced by our proximity to them. Something to dream for, to pray for, to aspire to. Spurgeon said this works of charity must keep pace with the preaching of faith, or the church will not be perfect in its development. His vision was this uh, uh, a pulpit ministry, a preaching ministry, a gospel ministry should never go ahead of the good works of its people. Good works should always keep pace with the proclamation of the gospel. Sadly, there are so many churches, sadly, there are a lot of reformed churches that are well known for the proclamation of the gospel, they're well known for sound doctrine, and they are not famous for good works. May that not be said of us. May the truths that go out from this pulpit, the the truths that we affirm as a body of believers, may they impel us and motivate us enthusiastically and energetically toward good works. One more quote from Spurgeon. He says, You ask a person to hear your preacher, but he knows that you are crotchety. That's another great British word. Short-tempered. Illiberal, And he is not likely to think much of the word which, as he thinks, has made you what you are. But if, on the other hand, he sees your compassionate spirit, he will first be attracted to you, then next to what you have to say. And then you may lead him as with a thread and bring him to listen to the truth as it is in Jesus. And who can tell but thus through the sympathy of your tender heart you may be the means of bringing him to Christ. There are a lot of evangelists that think simply by magical incantation, by just shouting out the words, people are going to be saved. I'll tell you what's much more effective. A tender heart like this, uh, that loves... That shows compassion. That is enticing to people. That draws people in to see that there's something different about these people. They love others. They love their enemies. They love their neighbors. And they're so sensitive to my needs and my concerns. Why is that? i got to go to this church and hear more about this. Or i got to go to that Bible study, that small group. Or i got to just go to this person and ask them, what is the reason for the hope that you have within you? Why are you so loving? Why are you so good to me? And if you love in this way, people will come to you. People will come to us if we would love in this sort of way. And they will ask us for the hope that is within us. In closing, I don't want to miss this. Why are Christians supposed to be characterized by good works? I hope you didn't miss this in Titus. It's because Christ has been so loving to us. Because He has redeemed us. And far be it from us, far be it from me in this sermon, if I would call you to good works without pointing to the one who has shown us a pattern of good works. And to the one who enacted that great good work on the cross. That great service of laying down His life. Did Jesus love His enemies? Those who did not want Him, loved Him. Did He love those even from the cross who were mocking Him and jeering at Him? Does His Father forgive them for they know not what they do? That's a pattern for love. He loved His enemies. He loved those who persecuted him, those who spitefully used him, and he went to the cross as a supreme act of love. And he carried out this great work, redemption for sinners, the forgiveness of sins, and right standing in Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters and especially those of you who are outside of Christ, I point to you to that philanthropist, to that man of charity, that man of compassion. Uh, that man of good works, that man who was zealous for the needs of others and for those who were even his enemies. And if you are an enemy of God, if you're outside of Christ, I point you to that man as a pattern for good works. He's our model. He's the one we're looking to. And if you would look to him, you will live. If you will repent of your sins, you will ask forgiveness. And if you will put your faith in Christ, you can know the love that is in Christ Jesus. And I commend him to you as a Savior. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that you have sent your Son, Jesus, in the world so that he would die and that he would be able to redeem a people for his glory, a people who are zealous for good works. Lord, we know that you have many of your people here in this room, and so we pray that you would make us into those who are zealous for good works, who are ready for good works, who are devoted to good works. Lord, this sermon has been largely about holding forth scriptural truths, and yet there may be practical questions of how we're to work this out. In the days ahead, show us how to do that. Uh, Provide us opportunities to perform good works for our neighbors, for those who are in need. As there are needs in the body of Christ, I pray that you would help us as we get to know each other better and open up more and more to one another, that we would be sensitive to uh, the burdens and needs of our brothers and sisters and that we would have a quick eye and a, a quick hand toward helping one another. I pray that you would enable our church to actually have an impact on our community. We would be known for good works and that uh, our love for others, our compassion, our sympathy, our charity toward others would be like a sweet swelling aroma that would draw other people into the church and draw other people to hear the gospel. Father, please make us to be real and authentic. We don't want to be fake Christians who just uh, uh, have faith in word only. We want to be those who accompany word with deed. Make us to be authentic believers, real believers. We don't want to be hypocrites. Uh, We don't want to be those who, who rather than drawing others to uh, the grace and goodness and wonder of the gospel, rather alienate and repel people by a self-righteous spirit. Lord, we want to be those who are known for our love. Because we've been taught love through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, He is the first great philanthropist. The lover of men. And He has been the lover of our souls. And we thank You for Him for the pattern of good works that He has shown us in the cross. We're pleading with You, Lord, for those here who don't know You, that You would save them, and that You would, by Your grace, perform a good work in their heart and deliver them from sin and from darkness and from hell. May they call out to You and see in You such an expression and beautiful picture of love, and may they be drawn to that love. Would You do it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, thank each of you for being with us. Uh, if you received a contact card, a connect card on your way in, if you're visiting with us, we just ask that you fill that out and if you would just leave it in the pew just that we have a record of your visit and uh, could maybe follow up with you if you would like that. I want to warmly welcome everybody to our Wednesday night small groups that take place at 7 p.m. at uh, my, my home, uh, mine and Jenna's home and near Wake Forest, and if you'd like to join one of those groups, there's information online, or you can just see me uh, afterward, and I'd be happy to, to share more with you. we we'll meet next week, same time, 6 p.m. for worship, 445 for our Constitution class, and dismiss you with the blessing of the Lord Jesus. You're dismissed.